Zoom in on global affairs with insightful debates and exclusive interviews. This is World Insight. Hello from San Francisco. Welcome to World Insight with me, Tianwei. The APEC Leaders Meeting 2023 wrapped up. The country of Peru takes over the baton as APEC's host of next year. Here's my brief encounter with Peruvian president when the APEC week wrapped up in San Francisco. She spelled out her expectations for APEC 2024. What a pleasure to see you here. Congratulations for being the host of the next APEC. Uh, anything you want to We are waiting for the president of China next year in Lima, Peru so that we can continue strengthening the bond of bilateral friendships that we have with the country of China. So thank you so much. We are waiting for all of China there in Peru. That's wonderful. China has uh, Peru as the second largest important uh, investment uh, market, and uh, China is also Peru's largest trading partner. So uh, many pr- potential in the future. <laughs> China is our second most important trading partner, so we continue to trust and strengthen those ties to continue working in the bilateral work that we have with. Thank you so much. Peru, the third largest country in South America, is set to host APEC 2024. It will be its third time to convene the event. Macroeconomic stability, trade openness, and a favorable international environment allowed the country to become an upper-middle-income country, with per capita income rising from 2,040 U.S. dollars in 2002 to 7,126 U.S. dollars in 2022. Bilateral trade with China also reached more than 34 billion U.S. dollars in the year 2022, up even 1.7% year-on-year. The two countries are celebrating the 10th anniversary of China-Peru Comprehensive Strategic Partnership this year. The business community between China and Peru on the platform of APEC is also active. As Julia told me, who is the APEC chair, for the year 2024 from Peru, told me in an exclusive interview, the interactions will only increase. Julia, Peru, your home country, is going to be the next host of uh, uh, APEC and also APEC CEO Summit. How are you going to prepare for that, given the circumstances? We are very enthusiastic. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be able to represent the business sector in this effort uh, within our APEC economies, trying to thrive not only in our theme for for next year, which is people, business and prosperity, Mm -hmm. but making sure that uh, we align and we use all these uh, other topics across the border, like innovation, digitalization, uh, investment and financing as well, in order to get our citizens better opportunities That is so important, isn't it? Especially right now, when geopolitics and uncertainties have becoming the backdrop uh, of our economy. So how do you see your part of the world, Latin America, will be able to contribute to the whole discussion? You know, Latin America, and specifically Peru, that is hosting uh, AVAC and uh, APEC Summit next year, have a lot of opportunities, not only because we support and we promote sustainable businesses, but because uh, in the case of Peru, we are one of the main producers of copper in the world, which is a metal that is key 
in order to get the decarbonization process and also making sure that we have green energy and others because of our weather conditions. So we are eager to promote this worldwide and specifically in the APEC region. How would you as the host country be able to bring you know, the big powers also with you, including China, including the United States? As the President Boluarte has mentioned uh, this morning and in other events, Peru is uh, welcoming all responsible investments in, in, in our country. And we already have a lot of presence of Chinese companies in uh, matters of energy and electricity in Peru, also mining companies, and we expect to inaugurate during the APEC summit next year the Chancay port. It's a very important investment of $3 billion by Costco and also a Peruvian company that uh, will be allowing us to export goods and, uh, to, to China very fast with a savings of nine hours in the, in the trip, but also to import goods from all other, uh, for, from the rest of the world. So we are very happy with this and we believe that uh, our country is not only proper for receiving all kinds of investments, responsible investment, but we also offer very good conditions. So how do you see, on the one hand, the enthusiasm about incorporate all these technologies for better, but on the other hand, they might be used as targets for protectionism at the same time. You know, I think it's an opportunity for all of us and the APEC uh, community to be able to communicate and inform properly to all our citizens what are the advantages, not only of the technologies, but uh, of the production. Peru has, for example, in copper, that is key for this electrification of vehicles and also helping the environment. So every threat represents a, a key opportunity and I think we are going to work hard communicating better for people to understand and avoid this uh, opposition that sometimes is just based on lack of knowledge. Sometimes politics jumps before you could even have a chance to communicate with the public. And sometimes those poli politics are just a consequence of lack of information and that's something that we also want to thrive during our year. As, as uh, AVAC uh, chair next year, my request to all the team has been to be able to communicate better and to make sure that all the citizens of our 21 economies can see tangible results of all the work and procedure that we develop in APEC. It's such a good environment, not only for business, but also for the governments, private and public sector working together in the same agenda, that we must make sure that everybody is aware and our citizens can enjoy those benefits as well, knowing that there are changes in their lives thanks to all this work that private and public sector are doing. So Julia, what do you make of the current stage of uh, disruptions and how to make sure people will have better confidence from the business community's perspective to make it happen? You know, I believe that uh, there has there is pending work by several actors, important actors, in order to help those disruptions and avoid them in the future. However, uh, our work with the community and with the people is to make sure that everybody understands that in our countries and in the APEC region, most of the people are business people. All the entrepreneurs and all the people who have their enterprises, the initiatives and innovation that they have is uh, small and medium enterprises, all are business people, so this is not something that uh, we are talking about other people. 
we are talking about this business community that involves the person who sells things in the street, sells an orange juice, or the persons that have other kind of enterprise, digital or not. So there are a lot of opportunities, and I think that's where we have to aim together with the public sector. Uh, we have seen Chinese and the U.S. presidents uh, in a window opportunity talking to one another and show it to the rest of the Asia-Pacific region uh, during their meeting in San Francisco. Now, what are some of the most important messages that you got so far from their conversation, at least from their public readouts? The importance that uh, the people have for both and for the world in general, and that our commitment has to be done in order to meet those opportunities that the world presents today with the conditions it has, but that the world is big enough for everybody to work together, uh, having the people in the center. That's, that's, that's the message, and I think that there's an opportunity for these uh, big uh, economies to work together in promoting not only business, but also better conditions for the world and for the citizens of the APEC region as well. Yeah, I heard that sentence twice from you. Yes. Obviously, that's your favorite in a way. Of course, <laughs> and that's what I'm going to really try to, to get because that's my motivation as APEC chair and I hope as a citizen not only of Peru but of the world. Thank you, Julia. Really appreciate it. And congratulations to be the chair of APEC. So much to do. Thank you. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platform and get ready to dive in. From the city of San Francisco, World Inside with me, Tian Wei. Multilateral and bilateral dialogues were held during the APEC gathering. Participants take a close eye on China-U.S. relations, especially the meeting between the two presidents. A dinner was held in San Francisco in which friends of China from different walks of life from the American society were invited. Ben Harburg, a member of the board of directors from the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, attended the dinner. I asked him about his takeaways given the backdrop of the meeting between the two presidents. Good to see you here in San Francisco. Good to see you too. What a dinner. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I heard that uh, you were going up uh, to our president and greeting him and tell him about your family, beautiful family in China. I did. I told him my son was born in Xi'an. <laughs> and you said it in Chinese? I did. I did. How did you say it? What art so Xi'an Did he laugh just as you are doing? He did. He did. He did. He got yeah. it. He got and it. Certainly people have been uh, coming with uh, all over the world, uh, yeah. especially here in the U.S., uh, Yes. gather around. A lot of good friends, huh? That's right. That's yeah. right. The whole world congregated here this week. Right. What was it like to be in the green room? Um, it was pretty interesting. Obviously, you had a lot of representation from just about every one of the major U.S. corporations that right. do business in China and uh -huh. also a lot of political leaders and others. Right. Of course, this is right after the Xi Jinping and Biden meeting. Mm. You guys already heard about the general meaning of the readout when you were gathering at the Green Room. So what was the atmosphere, How, what people are saying about this? It was positive. I mean, I, I don't think there were any surprises that came out of their meeting. Uh, fairly constructive, but no kind of major breakthroughs, I guess mm -hmm. I'd say. Yeah. And it seems that both are suggesting communication is important. Yes, I think that critical was the opening of military to military communications, which is that major kind of guardrail against future mm -hmm. potential hot conflict. 
And for business communities particularly, you need the stability, you need the predictability. So how were those messages being conveyed to earlier events you went to with the uh, U.S. president and later with the Chinese president? Uh, I didn't feel like there was a real address of the business community. I mean, this was a much more broad address to the American people to kind of talk about the commonalities between the countries, how we'd supported each other during wars of the past and how we continue to be connected. But there was less of an outreach, I'd say, directly to business interests. Mm -hmm. So what about the needs coming from the business community? We need stability. We need predictability. And uh, again, I, I think that China, to its credit, has been fairly good about taking on board criticism, constructive criticism, when it comes to improvements around the economy and in infrastructure around it. So those need to be improved to help global investor sentiment. After three years of the pandemic, you see China pretty much in the mood of let's open the door and let's make the world know that we are opening the door. Having said that, though, uh, what kinds of communication do you see is crucial and what kinds of uh, content in terms of delivering is crucial? Yeah, certainly China is doing its best to recruit and, 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 and encourage the world to come back to doing business in China after this kind of three-year hiatus. Again, I think we need predictability. We need um, communications that explain and rationalize what regulatory actions are, have happened, why they happened, what's coming around the bend. That lack of predictability is the thing that, that global investors fear the most. You see from the expressions coming from the Chinese president, a lot of emphasis being put on people-to-people, -people, uh, local interactions, uh, business economic ties, and things like that. And of course, the young people. So what does that mean? Uh, does it mean that we are likely to have mainly these areas that is still possible to have common ground? Or does it mean that these areas are likely, in, even in the near term, nurture uh, the other areas of importance, military, economic, and trade, and things like that. They go hand in hand. And again, one of the challenges of zero COVID and kind of the environment after it was there was just a handful of, for instance, American students studying in China, just uh, maybe somewhere around 50 to 75. So this initiative that the president announced is critical for bringing thousands, hopefully, of American students. We've got to convince them that they can and should come to China. But it's critical that we generate a new group of, of, of individuals that understand China from a firsthand perspective and don't simply read about it. And earlier during the speech, the Chinese president talked about the ups and downs of the relationship. Uh, how do you understand what we are experiencing now with the context of a bigger history? I think we're at one of the low points. Um, maybe there were slightly lower points over the last year or two, but, but this is certainly not a high point in the relationship. Um, but this ebb and flow, as you said, is, is characteristic of such a, a dynamic relationship. And I think both countries acknowledge that the world cannot progress unless we are communicating and on constructive grounds. Mm -hmm. So now investing in China, tell me more about the details, the nuances. Uh, what do you think you would describe to your business partners if they want to ask you, what about investing in China these days? Our, our perception is that we're now at kind of, we were at lows over the last few months and now things appear to be on the upswing. We've seen really strong improvement out of the Chinese stocks that we've invested in. Um, and overall, I think from a counter cyclicality perspective, China is actually better positioned than the West in many ways because of how it's coming out of zero COVID and the time now for stimulating the economy. Mm -hmm. Now, the cultural exchanges, uh, people to people, extremely important. What do you see might be some of the areas that both sides can really communicate well and make it early harvest, as they say, lower hunting fruits? 
I, you know, I think, again, a lot of this soft power and human-to-human is critical, so bringing back the pandas, if at all possible, um, encouraging, again, American students to come, making it very user-friendly gateway to bring them back to the country. Um, it's critical to develop that next generation of Americans that understand at least the conditions on the ground in China. They don't have to agree with anything that's going on, but they have to at least understand it firsthand. How do you see the proceeding of the so-called trade war today and how much impact is it continue going to have on all of us? It still maintains uh, its current status. It's still challenging to unwind a lot of the trade war actions taken first by the Trump administration and continued on by Biden. So I don't expect an immediate re- resolution to it. It's very hard to unwind. But in the long term, uh, I think it's critical that we find ways to economically compete while still stimulating business domestically. The four organizations that organized the dinner, the um, National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, the U.S.-China Business Council, Asia Society, and the Council on Foreign Relations, they've been doing this, some say, with a lot of guts, even though they're also doing it with the appeal of their members because there are already criticism against the members of them. So how do you see these kinds of rhetorics uh, in this part of the world against uh, you know, initiatives like this? There are certainly the isolationists that would like to cut all communication. And I think that's just not simply realistic, not only because we have huge intercultural, human, and of course economic and political ties, but the world is dependent on these two countries getting along. Uh, and so for us to bury our heads in the sand would be a huge disservice to humanity. So what would you say to your Chinese friends that are coming here at this time? Well, this has always been a gateway to Asia for, for the West and for the United States particularly. And there's a huge number of Chinese entrepreneurs uh, that have been educated here, started businesses here, and still continue to build cross-border. And we need to encourage more of that cross-border business development. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. Cooperation and mutual benefits between China and the U.S. is extremely crucial. The company Boeing and the U.S. are launching an initiative to push for sustainable aviation fuel among APEC member economies. The aircraft maker has been developing partnerships also with Chinese research institutes on the issue. I took a walk with the chief sustainability officer of Boeing during the APEC week and asked about the latest development. Chris, good to see you. Nice to see you. Wow, it's such a wonderful space you had over here. Thank you, thank you. Well, one of the themes was sustainability, so we wanted to bring our WISC all-electric autonomous airplane and our Cascade climate impact model. Everybody wants to jump on there. Yeah, they want to fly away, I think, with the traffic in San Francisco. Indeed, indeed, and they don't want to leave the cabin. That's true. (laughs) So having said that, though, tell us about this uh, new energy, renewable energy that you have been uh, working so hard with your colleagues. Sure. Well, I think the three renewable energies that come up a lot in aviation are sustainable aviation fuels, electricity, and hydrogen. And one thing we've been learning is we have to think about the carbon emissions of any of those fuels from the time they're taken out of the ground to the time we burn them on an aviation platform. So they they all have carbon emissions because none of them are completely green today. But sustainable aviation fuels, because it can be used by existing airplanes, is something the industry really feels like can be a big part of the solution to decarbonize aviation. We just have to come together to have more of it. But how would it come into being, you know, sustainable aviation fuel? What are these originally? How much do we need to put into it in order to turn them into sustainable aviation fuel? In process, how much carbon has been produced? 
Sure. Well, you know, we use the jet fuel today, which is pulling fossil fuel out yeah. of the ground, and we understand the emissions associated with jet fuel. But sustainable aviation fuels use a recycled carbon, like mm -hmm. some oils or greases that have already been pulled out of the ground and used. So like cooking oil. Cooking Earlier, oils. your colleagues were telling me. Yes, cooking mm -hmm. oils, uh, waste gases from landfills, these kind of things. There's a lot of innovation going on in this fuel area. But there's about eight different ways the fuels can be made today, but they're all limited in how, many, how much of it you can blend with jet fuel. So every one of the SAFs that's made today is 50-50 blend limited with jet fuel. But that's This is like a number you come up with after how long uh, an experiment? That usually takes uh, four or five years to get these fuels approved. There's an approval body called ASTM. Mm -hmm. Usually there's scientists and chemists and people from the manufacturers and the engine companies that are on there to determine that those fuels are going to be safe as a drop-in equivalent to jet fuel. And so that exists today. We just don't have very much of that. And, but people know that the emissions improvement we can get out of that can be anywhere between 30 and 85%. Since the airplanes are flying from one place to another, sure. so how will the carbon be calculated in a way? Well, the airlines can actually account for this pretty accurately already because they know the exact routes they fly, they know exactly the number of hours they fly the airplane, how much fuel they burn, and they know how much carbon is emitted from that fuel. So it's actually a fairly straightforward calculation for airlines because the data on flights is so recorded. And we built the Cascade Climate Impact Model to mirror the global aviation system and then look at what can be done to reduce the carbon impact. And we just actually uh, demonstrated that tool at Peking uh, University Institute of Energy. Mm -hmm. That's nice, Peking University yes. Institute of Energy. So what specific part uh, you have been uh, working with them? Well, we've done research on SAF with China probably for the last 13 or 14 years. Air China actually flew an airplane, a 747 on sustainable aviation fuel, I think in 2010. Mm -hmm. And we've been working to establish research centers. We've worked on uh, Peking University's report on sustainable aviation mm -hmm. fuel. And, and we'll probably work next on uh, Southeast Asia roadmaps for what components of sustainable aviation fuel are available in some of the APEC economy countries and how can we grow a bigger industry in the APEC region. One of the things is if you look at APEC, it's a very diverse economy. It's a small, uh, big uh, economies and of different nature. So how, you know, as a global company working on the sustainable development, uh, coordinate with the circumstances that each economies have? That's an interesting question, isn't sure, it? Sure, it is. And, you know, fortunately, Boeing is is a big global company. We have presence and people and ex subject matter experts in many, if not all, of the APEC economy countries. So we really rely on those people to know what policies are emerging, what are the interests of the, the countries, yeah. and, and to be part of the policy formulation on things like sustainable aviation fuel. One of the announcements we just made here at the forum was about the APEC regions collaborating on things like policy. And what we're learning is policies emerging all over the world. Some of it looks like a mandate. Some of it looks like an incentive. And we need to share what are the best elements of policy that gives sustainable aviation fuel the best chance to grow. What do you mean when it comes to the best? Well, I think right now uh, the United States has the Inflation Reduction Act, so they're offering tax incentives for these sort of things to happen. Other countries have uh, mandates on fuel producers, like in Europe. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're seeing these different policies emerge. It's a little too early to know what combination of them all is going to be really effective. But we do know that here in California, mm -hmm. they've had policies around this that have helped the industry grow 
for renewable diesel for road cars, but then also for sustainable aviation fuels. So I think California is a bit of a precedent model on what policy can do to get the production going. And remember, the California governor was just in China. He was popping onto this yes. uh, EV uh, buses, you yes. know, to yeah. see how it works and how maybe the state of California could also share that as well. So how is that synergy working out among, you know, different economies? Well, I think not only different economies, but between players in those economies. What we're learning as aviation people is we need to be working closely with energy firms big ones and small ones. We also need to be working together with the policymakers. Ministers of transport are often a place to start. And then we have to be working closely with the banking sector because at the end of the day, they have to be willing to finance the capital infrastructure of a startup fuel company or a big company that's going to change some of their infrastructure to make more sustainable aviation. Mm. Chris, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Wei. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for today. The APEC economic leaders meeting wrapped up already in the city of San Francisco. On behalf of my teams here in San Francisco and Beijing, I'm Tian Wei. Bye for now.